It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 5. We've got a couple more weeks left in 1 Peter. Um, if you did not bring a Bible with you to church today, there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. And uh, we'll be on page 1018 of the pew Bible. We'll be working uh, four verses this morning by God's grace. It should take us around 45 minutes or so. And then I'll pray for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse... Eight, and working down to verse 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord and Father, God of all grace, to you belong dominion over all. The forces of darkness, the enemy, to you belong dominion. And we ask you, Father, that you would use this word this morning to speak to your people and glorify your Son in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, uh, as I said, we've got a couple more weeks left in First Peter. In this passage, I see a few things working. Uh, first of all, Christians, this is what at least I see at the beginning. This is what is here. Christians have an enemy who wants to destroy them. The enemy is called the adversary or the devil. And Christians, we are told to resist him. And we do this by maintaining unyielding dependence on our gracious God who has categorical dominion over the devil and his forces. And that God has guaranteed eternal glory and restoration of all that is lost during suffering. If that feels complicated, I hope that over the next few minutes it will become clear. So let's begin at verse 8, and we'll just work verse by verse as we normally do through these passages, see what the Lord has for us to learn about uh, His Son. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's a legendary battle that took place in the middle of the 16th century in Japan. It's called the Battle of Okeazama. It took place during a time in Japan's history where there was great turmoil 
happening. There was a major civil war going on, lasted a very long time. And there were powerful families fighting and battling over control of the, the islands of Japan. And this, this is the period where uh, the, the great samurai warriors come from. In June of 1560, an army of 25,000 men, led by a man named Imagawa Yoshimito, advanced to take control of Japan's main island. He settled this massive army in a valley in order to make preparations for his last, you know, you know thrust into the capital. But in the way was a man named Oda Nobunaga, who was, had convinced his small band of followers to take a stand against this massive army. Nobunaga rallied 3,000 men against an army of 25,000. They were outnumbered almost 10 to 1. Nobunaga took 500 of his tiny army and he put them on a hilltop to fight this giant army. Yoshimito, with his giant army, crushed that tiny army on the top of the hill and returned to the valley to celebrate his victory. And celebrate they did. Alcohol flowed freely. There was great partying, all sorts of carrying on. And just then, a summer thunderstorm rolled in. And under the cover of that thunderstorm, the remaining 2,500 of Nobunaga's forces attacked And it threw that great drunken army into a panic. Nobunaga's samurais easily broke through the forces and reached the leaders, killed them, and the remaining army scattered. Nobunaga's army had defeated a force ten times its size. Was it because their samurais were better than the other samurais, or was it because Nobunaga was a greater military commander than the others, it wasn't. The reason was is because the bigger army was unprepared. They had become so confident in themselves, they had forgotten what was at stake. They had, and a tiny army was able to defeat them. And in the closing verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle tells us to be sober-minded and watchful because we have an enemy. He's called the adversary, the devil, and he prowls around looking for someone to devour We needn't fear him, but we must not be unaware of his ways. So I want to get something out of the way first. You, dear Christian, have an enemy. He is called the adversary, the devil, or as my five-year-old calls him, the devil. Elsewhere, the Bible calls the devil Satan. He is a demon sort of the head of demons. Probably he was an angel and he led a rebellion against God and God cast him down to the earth along with a whole host of angels where he prowls around looking for someone to devour. He does not like Christians and he's your enemy. The devil has some power, but there is no reason to be afraid of him because he is not God. He does not rival God. He does not have God's attributes. For example, the devil is not omnipresent like God. See, God is everywhere all at once, but the devil is one place at one time. The devil is also 
not omniscient, meaning that the devil doesn't know everything and he can't read your mind, nor is he omnipotent. His power is limited. God is sovereign over Satan and the demons and the forces of darkness. The devil is powerful, but he is a defeated foe. Jesus defeated Satan and demons and the forces of darkness on the cross. And now the devil operates according to God's will. And therefore, there is no reason for a Christian to fear him. The worst thing, dear Christian, that Satan can do is kill you. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warns the church in Smyrna with these words. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this is the worst the enemy can do. Just kill you. He can bring suffering into your life. He can cause you to trust God more. Or he can kill you. And cause you to be with God quicker. The only thing the devil can do is make Christians better Christians. It's a wonder he's so upset. All he can do is make you more sanctified. He may have some power. But he is a pawn. And when the Lord is done with him, he will dispose of him in a place called the lake of fire. So there's nothing whatsoever to fear. But, that said, we ought not to ignore him either. C.S. Lewis famously said that there are two errors with regard to Satan and demons. One error is to be on this side, which is to make too much of them and to, to, to be obsessed, to have an unhealthy obsession with Satan and demons and to blame them for everything that goes wrong in the world. And the other error is over here and to act like they don't exist. And we don't want to be either of those. We don't want to make either of those mistakes. And so we want to be biblical and be balanced in a biblical sense and think clearly about devils and demons. And that's where we're going to start, where Peter starts, be sober-minded. By the way, this seems to be something very significant for the Apostle Peter. That, that, that word, be sober-minded, that little phrase in the New Testament, it's used six times in the New Testament. Three times it's used by Peter in this letter alone. So it seems to be something that's very important to the Apostle. And we should understand what he means. If you remember from when we were in chapter 1 or chapter 4, be, being sober-minded means to think clearly, be restrained in your thinking. In other words, limit the intakes of things into your mind which numb your mind, which cloud your thinking, or which impair your judgment. Friends, we are called to engage our minds in the work and ministry of the gospel in our life. I don't think I can overstate the place that your mind plays in your Christian walk. You are called to think and to think clearly. Emotions and affections are important, but these are secondary and arise only out of what you think. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, this battle that you war against it with the enemy is a battle in your mind. And we ought to think clearly in order to manage our affections. It is so easy to let the mind get bogged down with 
things that numb us, inane, meaningless, mindless nothings. It's like walking through deep mud where the mud gets clung to your boots and makes it hard to walk. There are a thousand things competing for real estate in your mind, and the enemy knows that if he can get your mind occupied with frivolous, meaningless, weightless matters, even harmless things, you are vulnerable. You can't discern God's will, and you can't overcome temptation. So we have to treat our brain as if it were a muscle. If you're feeding your brain with a steady diet of mindlessness, like sitcoms and social media all the time, then when you sit down to read, understand, memorize God's word, your brain isn't ready to do the hard work. It grows tired. Has anyone else noticed this? When you, you, you can be total, you could be jacked up on three or four cups of coffee, but the moment that you sit down at the table and crack open your Bible and begin to read, you're suddenly tired. This is not a book like any other book. It requires hard work and focused attention to read it and understand it. Your Living Stones groups have a challenging unit this last week and this week for ladies. It requires hard thinking, and it's a challenge. And some of us, I understand, have a hard time focusing, and I get that. But there are things that you can do about focus. Eat better food, less sugar, for example. Read more books. Read above your reading level. Treat your brain like a muscle. It's not easy. It's often slow going when you read above your reading level, but stick with it. It requires self-control and it requires discipline, but the reward is well worth the effort. Consider how the Apostle Paul views the work of self-control in his life. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what he says. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I, listen to this, discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Athletes exercise, and for what? The Lombardi trophy? The pennant? What's at stake for us? But our souls. Less than preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Are you seeing how important the Paul, the Apostle Paul puts self-discipline and control in his life? He likens it to the safety of his own soul. And how often do we hear Christians say with the Apostle Paul, I have a hard time reading my Bible. But doggone it, I will beat my body into submission and make it my slave. Do we even talk like that? Do we even think like that? I just wonder how many of us have the same kind of dedication to understanding and applying Scripture as, we, as a professional athlete does to a training for a sport. What does the athlete get? A fat contract and maybe an episode in MTV Cribs? 
But what does a Christian get? You get mansions in glory. You get to be the one that God uses to snatch souls out of the clutches of hell. That's what's at stake for us. I understand that reading and understand, uh, understanding the Bible is difficult. It's not easy for me any, any more than it is for you. But don't give up just because it's hard. This is a matter of life and death. And we must fill our lives with God's holy word daily. We must be sober-minded and clear-headed, especially in the days in which we live. Next, Peter says, be watchful. Be watchful. It means be on, the, be on the lookout. Be aware of your surroundings. Don't be like Yoshimoto's, uh, Yoshimoto's army and, and, and goofing around in the valley, drunken with the celebrations. When your enemy is on the prowl. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples regarding the end of days. He says this in Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. That means wastefulness. Weighed down with wastefulness and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, speaking of the last day, will come upon you suddenly like a trap. Be watchful is the same word that the Lord Jesus used in the garden moments before he was arrested, where he told his disciples, no doubt Peter remembering these words said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. There is a devil and he is real. And he is under God's hand. And, but we must not allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep with what Jesus calls wastefulness, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. We need to have a ready defense against his attack. And so we are called to think clearly and to be watchful. Next, Peter says, resist him. Verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist the adversary firm in your faith. James 4, 7 says almost the same thing. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In order to put up an effective opposition to the enemy, we must be firm in our faith. We must have a solid grip on the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. What is this faith? And how, what if you aren't firm in your faith? What if you have doubt? What if you aren't sure it's true? How do you strengthen your faith in order to get a firm grip on your faith? The Bible tells you, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, read your Bible. I feel like I've said that already. We need to read the scriptures. 
to increase our faith, to give a firm grip on our faith, to resist the enemy. Dr. Edmund Clowney makes a keen observation about the role of faith in suffering, and he says this, I quote, Since the peculiar nature of faith is looking not to oneself but to the Lord, it is most strongly grounded when it is most dependent. End quote. Here's what we know, Cornerstone. We belong to the Lord and he uses suffering to purify our faith. And the purer our faith, the greater the reward. So suffering prepares us for a greater reward. Because it makes us depend on the Lord in a greater way. Resist the devil. Firmly entrusting yourself to your creator who will work your suffering for your good and for his glory. So what if the devil takes something away? What does that do except give you more reasons to trust the Lord and a reward for doing so? So what if the devil takes your health? What does that do except give you more reasons to pray and a greater reward for doing so? Realizing this has changed, completely changed the way I pray. I used to, when someone was sick, go right to asking the Lord to heal them. And that's fine. Maybe God would be pleased to heal them. Sometimes he does. But what if, cornerstone, the greater good comes not from the physical healing, but from the dependence on God that is only forged during that time of affliction? 2 Corinthians 1 changed my mind. Paul writes, in his time of affliction, he says these words, Speaking of himself and those who were him. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We thought we were going to die. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then God delivered him. I'm not saying that healing is not God's will. Sometimes healing is God's will. But why would anyone forego the glory of an eternal reward from prolonged dependence on God for the temporary relief of a tiny bit of suffering? I just wish that we could see with God's eyes what He sees when we're enduring affliction. I think we would pray so much differently. One more thing in verse 9. The firmness of our faith and therefore our ability to resist the enemy is reinforced, Peter says, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. About twice a week, I get an email from an organization called Open Doors. You may have heard of them before. It's an, or- it's an organization that exists to, to track and to report on Christian persecution throughout the world. And they, they send out emails a couple times a week, generally, 
to say this is this is this family, this is this person, this is this people group, and there's Christians there, they're being persecuted, please pray for them. I was thinking about these receiving these emails and the effect that it has had over the last year or so on my soul. And when I read these stories of persecuted families among the nations, families like mine, this is what I think it has done for me. First, I think three things. First, it's made me appreciate the unique situation here in the West instead of taking it for granted or assuming that it's normal because it isn't. What we have here in the 21st century in the West, this is an anomaly. Any student of church history will tell you what we have here has not happened before. So we shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't assume that this is just the way God does it. Secondly, receiving these emails, reading these stories, it's emboldened me in my efforts of calling my church to go to the nations. There's a reason why God has granted peace to the Western church. There's a reason why God has given us tremendous blessing here in the West. And it is not, sadly, because he loves us more. It's not even that he respects democracy. It's not even that he, he loves freedom of religion. And so he likes us better than other countries and gives us blessing. That's not the reason. I think the reason is because the West the church in the West is meant to equip and train and teach and send missionaries to the unreached places of the earth. The third thing it's done for my soul, and this is the most personal one, is when I read these stories, a families like mine enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel, it helps me to let go of the cowardly efforts of my heart to create a life that is devoid of hardship and suffering and affliction. It helps me to smash the idol of safety and comfort and to build a life of peace and pleasure when God is calling me to live for something greater than my own peace and pleasure. Resist the enemy. Be firm in your faith. Verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So your adversary is is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He may take, he may threaten, he may weaken, he may unsettle God's people. He may do it through persecution. He may do it through the threat of persecution. He may tempt you to sin. He may sow seeds of doubt in your life. He may send some of you to prison. He may get some of us killed. But these, dear friends, are intimidation tactics. They are his hope of making us to capitulate to his, his will at the prospect of suffering. So he's prowling and he's looking for the weak to separate them from the herd. 
But we needn't fear the enemy's tactics. Commentator Thomas Schreiner writes, The roaring of the devil is like a crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if God's people do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. Why don't we need to fear him? Because the God of all grace is our God. And he is safe. And he is a refuge. And he is strength. We read it at the opening of the service, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God's children... Do not need to fear suffering or affliction for the sake of the gospel. And what you need to resist the enemy, to have a defense against the enemy, it is not in you, it is in Jesus. The grace that you need to overcome Satan and demons and temptation are in the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. He has called you to eternal glory. And friends, if he has called you there, he will get you there. Remember the price the Heavenly Father paid for your soul. He gave his own son to bear the punishment of your sin to bring you to God. Listen, God does not gamble on souls. Romans 8, 37 and 38. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Some of us may cross the finish line into glory, battered and torn, limping, dehydrated. But whatever we have lost in this race, God himself will restore. Whatever the enemy has denied, God himself will confirm. Whatever the enemy has weakened, God himself will strengthen. And whatever the enemy has torn down, God himself will establish. In the end, God has dominion forever and ever. This means in your life, you have never experienced one single moment in which your God was not in total control of every bit of your circumstance. When you wake up tomorrow, he's in control. He's got it. Still on the throne. Whether you lay your head down tonight on a comfy pillow in your home or whether you lay down tonight and a a Christian lays down their head in, in in a jail cell in North Korea or in a hospital bed in the Philippines, tomorrow morning God will bring make the sun rise again. He's got everything in control. We needn't fear. We needn't worry. If he's called you to the finish line, you better believe he's capable To get you across it. Trust him. Be firm in your faith. Resist the enemy. Come what may. 
I want to conclude our time together this morning with a story from the life of the reformer Martin Luther and a hymn that he wrote. In 1527, it's probably the hardest year in Martin Luther's life. Is 10 years since he had nailed those 95 theses to that church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The thing that sparked the Reformation. And in the 10 years that transpired that faithful day, he had been tried by the Roman church and found to be guilty of heresy. He had been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church. He had been debated furiously for years, made many enemies, spent time in exile, lived in constant threat of harm. And those 10 years had been very hard on him physically. And he was, in 1527, very sick. He was deeply, deeply depressed. Probably related to stress, in the spring of that year, he was preaching a sermon and had to quit mid-sermon because he had just got dizzy and was about to fall over. Suddenly, uh, his ears started to buzz and ring really loudly. He got vertigo, laid down, and got violently ill. He wrote to a friend, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. And while he would recover, things would get worse. The Black Plague was approaching his hometown, and despite being pregnant herself, his wife Katie opened up their home, made it turn the Luther home into a little bit of a sick bay for the city's residents. The Luthers watched many of their friends die. Even their own son came down with the disease. And those were dark times. And the Reformation felt like it had stalled. The Catholic Church and its big powerful men and all the money it had, it seemed like it would squash this little return to biblical authenticity. And Luther was greatly depressed. In October of that year, Luther sat down, burdened by the weight of the day, and he penned the following lines in a hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. And then Luther implores us all with the last lines of his hymn. Let good and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. 
God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. Let's pray. God of all grace, who has called us to eternal glory, strengthen us, give us firmness in our faith, such that we, your people, might be able to stand against the darkness, stand against the enemy, resist his temptations, overcome his dreadful doubt, and make our way across the glorious finish line into heaven. Would you grant us strength, Master, in your glorious way you do. Make much of your Son in our life and bring us home to glory, step by step, depending and trusting on you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At the end of the service, what we like to do is reread the passage. Give you an opportunity to reflect on God's Word. Give you an opportunity to repent. If there's something in God's words that have convicted you of some sin in your life, I want to give you the opportunity to repent. You don't need to confess your sins to me. But if you confess your sins to the Lord and trust in Him and His death on the cross, then you've been forgiven of those sins. After I read this and after I pray, uh, the Lord's table is open. You, you may partake in communion if you like. Corey and Mary are going to lead us in one more song. Let's stand to our feet. First Peter chapter 5, like a prayer. Cornerstone Piqua, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Cornerstone, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us grace to confess our sins before you, to put our faith in you, and to be forgiven of those sins, and to walk from this place assured that you have pardoned us. In Jesus' name.